Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. They're saying, like, this is a category-defining product. This essentially is the advent of spatial computing, and it will be the way that we do all of our computing in future. True believers think that Apple Vision Pro means the era of virtual reality is almost here. But we've heard that before. And we're not living in the Matrix yet. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Virtual reality is the next big thing. We heard that five years ago. And ten. Now... Apple has come out with a VR headset. And it's Apple, so people are paying attention. But is this really the thing that will make virtual reality a reality? Also today, every month economists pour over the latest employment figures. Policymakers use them to guide big money decisions. But what if these numbers are getting the job market wrong? Because when stats can't called, we didn't pick up. Up first, you know who deserves an award? You. You are fantastic listeners. Only, what if we asked you to pay for it? Would that award still mean anything? Award season is in full swing. The Grammys just happened. The Oscars are coming up. Yelp has named its top 100 places to eat in Canada for 2024, and it's only February. And Vogue magazine, they have already released a bunch of best of lists, including best Botox in a bottle. Huh? You trying to tell me something, Daniel Nerman? <laughs> like, maybe. Like I have laugh lines? <laughs> you know, wrinkles are a sign of wisdom. I was giving you a compliment. Mm. But what I'm really trying to say here is almost every industry has awards. There's so many out there. Lawyers do awards, realtors, journalists. You can even win an award for running the best car wash. Well, who won that one? Because... You know, it's February in Calgary, so my car could use a wash. <laughs> See? The award got you. And that's the point. Awards get attention. If one had an award and one didn't, I'd probably choose the one with the award. Yes. Oh, for sure. Uh, having some measure of quality is going to be important for where I'm going to go to. Stamp of approval, I would say. There's a lot of competition. So for somebody to win it, says something. Hey, who doesn't love a winner? Yeah, and some people really care about that. But just like any marketing, being an award winner is going to cost you. How so? Well, in a lot of cases, you have to pay to enter industry awards. Alex Bonamy is with Award Force. It helps award programs manage their applications and collect fees. Alex says the average fee is between 250 and 300 bucks. And sometimes 
it can be a lot more than that. There's one client that was selling what they called, I believe, a silver package. Um, and it was upwards of, I think, 15000 Um, But that included not only the cost of the submission itself, but also a table of 10 for an award gala. So you're paying to be considered for this award, like 15 k in this case, and you're also paying up front for the party. You may also have to pay for your own plaque or trophy. And, and there can be other fees too. Joy McCarthy is a nutritionist in Toronto. And back in 2018, she won a Gourmand World Cookbook Award. And I was like so honored, thought it was so cool. So then I was like, well, I want to tell people this. Like I want to put, you know, the seal on my website. But in order to actually talk about it and use it, I have to like pay them $300 U.S. So they wanted her to pay just to put their logo on her site. Yeah. She was not impressed. She thought it was a cash grab, didn't pay for it, and the costs don't end there. You have to send out like 12 of your product to different judges around the world, and then you're paying shipping fees to like Australia and London and Italy and and just in the cost of your product and the cost of the shipping and the cost of the entry fee and all of it, you're like in the thousands and thousands of dollars. That's Sylvan Daniels. She owns a skincare line in Calgary called The Potion Masters. And she spends thousands of dollars every year on applying for awards. Why? Hey, the beauty industry is a crowded marketplace. You've got so many celebrities with their own brands now, Rihanna, Lady Gaga, and they have millions of followers. So it can be really tough to stand out. But Sylvan has won 30 awards and she thinks they give her an edge. And I think the biggest value for us is for like potential customers who don't know us coming to our website. How are they supposed to know if they've never heard of us? Like, is this worth buying? Should I try this? Is this product any good? You know, and so if they can see that industry experts love this product, it just gives them that confidence to order for the first time. So she clearly thinks that spending this money on awards is worth it. Yeah, she she does. But not everyone does. Not everyone wants to pay that kind of money or can pay to enter awards. So a lot of businesses are not even in the race. And and that is why Stephen Deere says we should be skeptical about awards, especially in the food world. People in the industry that are, you know, chefs and restaurateurs and lifelong managers, we all have secret favorite restaurants that are outstanding and people don't know them and they've never won an award. Um, but yeah, my heart goes out to like some of these mom and pops and small independents that can't pay to play to get into those awards and they're just as good as the guy who is. Stephen owns Modern Steak, a restaurant in Calgary, and he does not pay to play. Well, no, and he's also saying that if not everyone enters and not everyone can afford to enter, then these awards aren't really a best of. At the same time, it costs money to run a competition. Someone has to sort through all the entries, and judges, they're sometimes paid an honorarium. Entry fees can help offset those costs. And Daniela Furtado says paying to enter an award doesn't totally undermine the value of it. She's a marketing expert in Toronto. I don't think it's a complete turnoff when someone has paid for an award, um, I think it means a little bit like, okay, they're advocating for themselves. They've worked hard and they want the glory for it. And okay, yeah, they paid for it, but they must have done something right if they got to a place where they can pay for it. Okay, sure. But how do we know if an award is legit? 
So if it really matters to you, do your research. You should be able to get a sense for how legitimate it is by going online, looking at the website. If the criteria is transparent and the judges are industry experts, that kind of blue ribbon says something good. But if an award doesn't have a lot of online presence, that could be a red flag. It could be a vanity award. Those are the ones that straight up ask a business to pay for the award. Like they will send the business an email and say, hey, we'll put you on our top 10 list, but you got to spend three grand to advertise with us. But if you do it, then you can use that award to promote yourself. Sure. But, but think about this. Any award is still just a matter of taste. Even Sylvan Daniels, who has 30 awards under her belt, doesn't think they're the final word on her skincare products. Because even the judges have their own likes and dislikes. There was one awards where we sent out our products and we didn't get any award for any of them. And we're like, oh, wow, (laughs) you know, that sucks. And then the next year we entered those same awards and we got first place for every single one. But they send them to different judges every year. So it just, if you're a product, if you're lucky enough that the person who they send it to, that it resonates with them and they love it great, but that's not always going to happen. So it's not always, it's not always going to be fair. Yeah. Ultimately, we all make up our own minds and it doesn't really matter how many awards a place may or may not have. Yeah. And there's lots of tools out there to help you make a buying decision if you're not sure. Online reviews, star ratings, but you just got to remember everything's subjective, even word of mouth. I mean, I've had friends rave about restaurants that I thought were pretty meh. That's not you though. You gave a recommendation a few weeks back on a Vietnamese place that was fantastic. Oh, you liked that, huh? It was great. Freshest salad rolls in the city. You should win an award. Aw, thanks, Paul. On your Radio N by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrud. Canada's unemployment rate is 5.8%. How do we know that? Well, StatsCan figures it out by asking us about our jobs. Our answers help shape all kinds of policy, like interest rates. But we need to answer. And these days, who picks up the phone? Our producer, Ellis Cho, looks at what it means if we let that call go to voicemail. For 10 days every month, Brandy O'Byrne works morning, noon, and night, knocking on doors in all kinds of weather. Days where we're out in blizzards and I've been stuck and (laughs) digging the car out of residential streets that haven't been plowed. Her job? To ask Canadians about their jobs. Brandy collects data for Statistics Canada, and some of the most important information she collects is for the Labour Force Survey. So questions are about type of work you do, whether you're looking for work, working, retired. It's all based on the labour market or or things employment-related. The Labour Force Survey also tracks things like salaries. Are they going up or down? Are there more part-time jobs than full-time? And it's the official source of the unemployment rate in Canada. It's one of StatsCan's largest surveys. It tries to reach more than 55,000 households every month. But during the pandemic, 
home visits stopped. So since then, it's been a period of transition. Vincent Dale runs the Labour Force survey for StatsCan. He says the response rate before the pandemic was more than 85%. Today, it's at 70%. The number of people in the population that prefer a personal visit probably has declined. There's probably a bit of a reluctance to, to open the door after, after various lockdowns that we all went through. It is mandatory to take the survey, but they have to reach you first. And these days, that's not easy. It used to be that there would be one landline per dwelling. So it was a relatively simple question of phoning up that one landline. Now we have to work through three, four, five, six, seven cell phones that are attached to that dwelling. The, the drop in response rate is concerning. Pierre Brochu is a labour economist at the University of Ottawa. He calls Canada's labour force survey one of the best in the world. But if the response rate drops too low, that could change. If the data is of poor quality, the conclusions we, we draw will, will not necessarily be great. And I remember one prof in, in my PhD said, garbage in, garbage out. And that, he says, should matter to everyone. Because the labor force survey informs economic and policy decisions. It affects things like minimum wage or the Bank of Canada's decision to raise interest rates. Even how much EI you get. If, if we have issues about the data quality, it may not reflect the true economic situation. If the data shows your town's economy is doing great when it's not... Then your benefits are less generous because the system thinks you live in a region that the economy is doing better than it actually is. StatsCan knows it has a problem. It's coming up with strategies to reach more people including doing the surveys online. Until then, there is one person ready and waiting to take the call. So, Pierre, have you ever been asked? Have you ever been part of the survey? No. I'm dying to be asked. For The Cost of Living, I'm Alice Cho. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershrood. Remember when we were all going to wear Google glasses? Then we just didn't. Mark Zuckerberg was going to put us in the metaverse. Eh, we're still here. Virtual reality is like the carrot dangling just out of the reach of big tech. Now it's Apple's turn. It's come out with the Vision Pro, a VR headset that looks like a really fancy pair of ski goggles. Is this the thing that will finally make virtual reality a reality? Daryl Etherington is the former managing editor of TechCrunch. He just started The Angle, 
a technology newsletter on Substack. Hi, Daryl. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Good, thanks. Apple just came out with a Vision Pro. It's 3500 bucks US. Yes. Who is this for? I mean, people who have a spare $3,500 US to spend on something that is effectively a toy right now. Uh, I, I don't know exactly who it's for. I don't know that Apple knows exactly who it's for at this point either. Can, can you describe the Vision Pro? Well, it is um, future space goggles uh, that uh, goes, uh, you know, on your head. And it uh, it's a, I mean, it's a VR headset. Apple will not use the term VR headset, but that's what it is, right? It fully encases your eyes is what I mean by that. Uh, and then it also provides a pass-through view of the world around you. So it looks like you're in your space, but it's actually just a video feed of your space at like a very high resolution and very high refresh rate so that you can interact with the environment around you as if you're actually seeing it. And then you can dial that in and out. So you can dial it to be a more virtual or less virtual environment within that. And then basically what Apple has you doing in there is kind of playing with your iPhone apps, but floating in space sort of scattered around you. That's wild. So you're, if you're sitting in your living room right now, it's like you're looking at your living room, but then your phone apps, your iPhone apps would basically pop up and you can go and, and press them and then do whatever you're going to do in your app. Yes, that's right. You actually, so to, to press them is interesting too, because the um, user interface model is actually eye tracking. So inside the headset are cameras that are looking at your eyes and then you focus on things and the system detects like, oh, you're looking at a button or a text field. And then you make a little gesture with your fingers. You just essentially tap them together anywhere within view of the cameras. So they can just be sitting on your lap or, you know, as long as they're not behind you. Um, and then it activates whatever you happen to be looking at. And this is one thing reviewers have talked about. Like it's, it works surprisingly well, but it doesn't work 100% of the time. And that ends up being quite frustrating. It's still early days here. You know, this thing's been out yeah. for you know, a couple of weeks. If you're an Apple fanboy, what is your take right now on the Vision Pro? I think for the fanboys and for the people who are extreme optimists on this product, they're saying like this is a category defining product. This essentially is the advent of spatial computing, and it will be the way that we do all of our computing in future. Uh, as sort of uh, out of reach as it seems right now with the price tag and everything else. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's not a supplement to your devices like your iPhone or your Mac. It's a complete replacement for those things. Um, and a brand new paradigm in computing basically. Okay. So then if you're a skeptic, mm. what are you saying about this? I'm saying, cause I am a skeptic of this particular product. It's a, very, very, very impressive VR headset. Uh, add as many varies as you want there. It's the most impressive piece of VR hardware we've ever seen. Uh, and it's a good proof that VR headsets have a hard limit whereby they are just not going to catch on with the general public beyond a certain sort of uh, amount of uptake, let's say. So why do you say that? Because some people are out there and they're saying, hey, this is like the iPhone circa 2008. This right. is going to be the next universal device. It's early and most of us can't see it yet. But trust us, this thing is, is going to explode and everybody's going to be using it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, like that's a reasonable position to take, right? Because if you look back at a lot of the reviews of the iPhone, they were kind of similar to a lot of the reviews of the Vision Pro. But I think this thing itself will never become a mass market product 
simply because of what I was talking about. Like it's a headset on your face and people just don't want to do that in the end. It doesn't really matter what the trade is that you give them in value for putting that thing on your face and making your face all sweaty and heavy. You will never do that. But I think where there's the potential for this to be uh, something truly like defining in terms of like computing is the step beyond. And this is a long time away, but like where you put on glasses and the glasses effectively provide that experience. And we don't even have, there's like 16 steps missing between now and then in terms of just technological breakthroughs. Right. But like getting the interaction and the way that people think about computing in that spatial sense down now has value for that later state, but it's a long, long way away. Is that part of Apple's strategy for making this uh, headset thirty five hundred bucks? Like, is this is this strategic? I don't think that's strategic. I think the thirty five hundred dollar price point is essentially Apple is not a loss leading company. Like, there are companies that make things uh, as a loss leader, meaning just they will make it and lose a little money on each sale of the device, or just basically break even on the sale of the device. Uh, in order to build out some other market, like a software market or something like that, right? Uh, the Amazon Kindle is a classic example of something like that, where, you know, especially the early ones, they probably weren't making any money at all and losing money on those, but they wanted people to be able to buy books, right? And that was the, the real money maker for them. But this one, I would say Apple loves margins. And so they probably kept in a hard limit of like how far they were willing to go and losing money on these devices. I don't think they were willing to lose any. I think they were willing to like only make so much. And that's the $3,500 price point. Cause there's technology in there that has never been in anything at scale. So it's massively expensive to make. Like what? Oh, like the displays. The displays are incredibly high resolution to the point where the pixels are like, I think this is not even hyperbole, like the size of a red blood cell, uh, which it's, crazy how how uh how much smaller they are than the pixels on your phone for instance right but they needed to do that because the screens are right against your eye so they had to build that and they had to do uh latency so the latency of the video to the real world like i was talking about like it's low enough that you can do things like play ping pong and you will be accurate right like typically when video is fed from a camera to a screen it introduces an amount of delay or latency that would make that impossible but Apple has reduced the latency to where that is possible. Uh, if you think about a world in which a lot of people are wearing these kinds of headsets, whether it's Apple's or someone else's, what are we using them for? Well, for right now, it seems like Apple Apple reveals a lot in their marketing, right? Like they are looking for that killer app, so to speak, of like the thing that will make the thing sell, that will sell the thing to the average consumer. And what they're really playing up in the demo experiences that they provided to reviewers, which is a really key ingredient. It's a very curated process that they do where they walk reviewers through like, this is what we want you to do in the headset, right? And they placed a lot of emphasis in those demos on media consumption and specifically on like 3D movie avatar in this case, actually, that I think the most recent way of water one, um, movie consumption. And People were, by all accounts, blown away by that. Everyone seemed super, super impressed by that. Even people who like don't really like watching 3D movies in the theaters. So I think that was a smart choice, but it's also an interesting use case to think about, right? Like, is, is, you gonna go, is everyone going to go around and buy a $3,500 single player TV? Like, it's a TV that you can't share with anyone. You can't sit around in the living room with your family and watch this TV together because it's only on one person's face at one time, right? Again, it's 
so narrow and it doesn't really make the case for like, why is this a computer that lives alongside the iPhone and the Mac in terms of being a general computing device, right? Are you worried that Tim, that Tim Cook is going to come through your radio right now and say, yeah, and say, Daryl, you don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I applaud them for trying to do this thing that is very, very difficult. And I think the, I don't think it will be a loss. Like, technology companies do things all the time that end up complete losses. Apple doesn't typically do that. Apple is very good at like aligning its engineering goals and teams so that even when products don't go massively well, they gain a lot out of it for future use. Right. And I think that a lot of the things that they are developing, uh, that power the Apple vision pro will have terrific use in other products, even just the iPhone or, you know, existing products or whatever other new products they come up with. And so that's not going to be a total loss, right? So yeah, from what I'm hearing, it's like you do not see us all, you know, in Minority Report or in the Matrix anytime soon, if ever. I don't. I really don't. I mean, I, even if you get to glasses, like me and you wear glasses and, you know, lots of other people do. So it has a certain tolerance level, but there are plenty of people who don't wear glasses and who are not going to feel like they want to opt into wearing glasses uh, for the even the benefits of having your iPhone windows floating around in front of you. Well, Daryl Etherington, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks very much, Paul. Daryl Etherington writes The Angle, a technology newsletter on Substack. We recently talked about how tight the rental market is everywhere except retirement homes. We asked if you'd move into one, whether you're a senior or even if you're not. I think that I would, just given the fact that there's literally no other options out there. And uh, even if I was making a hundred grand a year, um, I might have to uh, consider that. Um, and why not? Uh, it's, it's hard to find community um, because we live in such an individualistic society right now. And I think that would contribute to um, an even better society. Thank you. Hi, my name is Greg. I'm calling in from uh, Gatineau, Quebec. And I just want to share that uh, about your piece on uh, younger folks moving into retired retirement residences that uh, I did that when I was uh, in my early 20s. I bought a condo in Riverview, New Brunswick, in what was a gated uh, condo community for uh, retired folks. And, uh, you know, I, I was new to the city. I was new to uh, Moncton. I was serving in the military at the time and uh, built quite a community. Um, and we had these wild parties <laughs> with older uh, women drinking much more than you would expect <laughs> of, of women their age. Um, so it was, it was a great time. And uh, I think there's much to be said about, you know, having that mixed age model. So anyway, thanks for running the show. Greg, my man, partying. Don't know if they put that on the brochure. If you hear something on the show and want to give us a call, our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. 
That's all for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haberschrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.